see you this evening. A little bit of a follow-up from this uh, morning's lesson. Uh, the passage that uh, was just read, the a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle, indicates everything that really we want to talk about uh, this evening as far as six relational sins that are commonly practiced uh, in our world around us and in our marriages and beyond that, even in our relationships in the church. So this goes beyond just what happens in a marriage. This also is the, are the same kinds of things that happen outside of marriages when it comes to brotherly love, friendships, things like that. And if we can avoid these six relational sins, we'll come a long way into being able to uh, uh, have the kind of relationship that we ought to have. It's always been uh, amazing to me that uh, uh, we think of a couple, for example, getting married and you've been to weddings and you see that day and, and there's nothing but happiness on everyone's faces and it's so exciting. Uh, the bride comes down the aisle and they uh, say their vows and the preacher preaches at them a little while. and. Uh, tells them till death do you part and don't mess this up and and uh, things like that and then uh, I pronounce you husband and wife and uh, they go skipping back down the aisle and everybody applauds etc and these two people who were so passionate and so excited about one another and about this beautiful day in which they could get married and it is hard to believe that at some point they would get to the point where they would come to uh, the idea that they had become so offended by each other that they were unyielding and they had built the bars of a castle uh, and, and nothing that you could say or do or the other person could say or do would, would, would even come close to breaking down those bars and bringing each other back together again. Uh, the NLT translates, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. And arguments separate friends like uh, a gate locked with bars. So as, as, as amazing as it may seem, it, it, it is, whether in a friendship or in a marriage, and we've seen it happen in both of these cases, uh, if you've lived long enough, you, you've seen this, and whether in a marriage or in a friendship, it, it really is phenomenal that we can get to the point where uh, we can't stand each other. Is, and and we, we, we were so excited at one point, and we so much loved each other at one point, and then all of a sudden, it, it just gets to that point. Um, I can tell you in experiences of helping people in troubled marriages, and I think I've mentioned this before in other circumstances. But when a couple comes in and, and uh, begins to talk about the problems, etc., uh, I usually ask, uh, well, uh, do you really want to save this marriage? And oftentimes one person says, oh, yes, absolutely, I really do. Uh, it's usually the person who's done the most offending, <laughs> surprisingly enough, and they realize now what they're losing. And then the other person, either the wife or the husband, looks at me and says, I really don't care. 
That's the worst words you'll ever hear. Because that's what's going on in this particular proverb. You've sucked the life out of me. You've sucked all the feelings out of me. I do not even imagine that there is any way that you, that I could, that you could do something that would cause me to actually change my mind about you. So all of those things give us a, a picture of how careful we must be in all of our relationships. There is a great care that we must use in our body and between Christians, whether in this congregation or Christians in other places. It's very important that we are careful. How do they hear what I'm saying? Ephesians 4 talks about the words that we use that can cut deeply and do not give grace to the hearers. And the same, of course, is true in marriage more, more than anything. It, it, is, it is amazing to me that we can oftentimes say things and do things to people, that we would, to our spouse, that we would never dream of saying or doing to somebody that was not our spouse or that was not behind our closed doors. And so it is, it is something that we need to have with great care. Let's talk a minute about understanding the destruct, destructiveness of relational sins and what, what actually happens here. Uh, first and foremost, no marriage is immune to this. No relationship is immune to this. No church is immune to this. Uh, we can easily build the bars of a castle uh, between ourselves and in a marriage. Sometimes I know, uh, I'm sure it was true with me, I'm sure it's true with, with most young couples when they get married, they just, nothing could ever separate us. <laughs> nothing could ever do anything to cause me not to like you or to not love you. Never have to worry that I would ever feel badly toward you. You're just my cat's meow, so to speak. And, uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, you're... Uh, your, your pie in the sky is uh, just not so true. Uh, you can and you probably will oftentimes hurt your spouse extremely deeply. And that deep hurt is very hard to, to rectify. What is the most dangerous is when the hurt becomes habitual. We need to learn what hurts our friends, our brothers and sisters, our spouses. And so that's, that's really what, what this is about. Uh, remember, too, that the person that uh, we deeply love also has the ability to hurt us deeply. The person whom we deeply love, we have also the ability to hurt them more deeply. It is a matter of just how a relationship works. It's so built on trust that if I'm not careful, the, the hurt that I give would be far deeper than it would if it was just a stranger at a store <laughs> or someone I did not know very well. While that's not justified, it would still be something that would, would be extremely, extremely deep. And this proverb illustrates the, the amount of care that we have to have uh, when we deal in, in our relationships. So consider this, love is built slowly over time. This is a really important principle. When God commands us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
That doesn't happen overnight. We don't just snap our fingers and suddenly we just are gaga about God. Uh, we have to learn to love Him, and that takes time and effort and uh, a lot of zeal to know Him more deeply. The time we spend with Him is what causes the love to grow. Everybody agree on that? That, that, that pretty, pretty well says it all. We can't just sit back and not pursue God and expect that we love Him. I can remember, and this is true, I think, of a lot of Christians, when I just thought, if I obey Him, that means I love Him. No, there's other motivations. If I obey Him, maybe it's because I'm scared of Him. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean I love Him. Or if I obey Him, I just translated that into love. It doesn't mean I love Him. I have to get to know Him more deeply than simply knowing the commands that He gives me and just the idea of I don't want to disappoint Him or I don't want Him to be mad at me. Can you imagine a marriage that way? Oh, the only reason I do anything for you, honey, is just I don't want you to get mad at me. I'm scared of you. <laughs> that, that would not be something any of us would want to hear, would it? Uh, so that's, that's not something God wants us to hear. So it, it, it takes time to do that, and it depends on time with God. But it also depends when we're talking about love between one another or love in a marriage. It takes time to build that love. And one of the things that, that we miss is that the deeper the love, the more enjoyable the relationship. It's a simple point. But the more enjoyable the relationship, the more it is easy to practice what's right in the relationship. If I don't have a deep love, it's easier to violate the relationship. So grow the relationship, take the time it takes to do that, and the more enjoyable it is, the easier it is to do what we know we ought to do, to lay our lives down, to be sacrificial. It's like one person said, it's really hard to blow a honeymoon. <laughs> some do, I have known some that blew it to pieces. But it's usually pretty hard to blow a honeymoon because the, the love that we have is so sky high that we're just like, oh, don't worry about it, I'm good. But when these destructive sins start eating away at our love, then it's not so easy. So we want to keep that at a level that's high and enjoyable. Danger of long-time marriages danger of marriages that are starting out. You don't do the work that you ought to do and continue to do the work, and what happens is, is that over time, love begins to erode almost unnoticeably. In order to come to the point where, if, you, if you're married, in order to come to the point where you loved each other enough to get married, you had to be spending 15 to 20 to 25 hours a week together. And most everybody I do premarital with will, if I, when I ask that question, which is one of the questions I ask, I ask that question, invariably, this God's, I can't even number it. We're, we're together every single moment. We can be together. Great. Fantastic. How much time do you think you'll spend together once you get married? 
I've literally had couples say, well, I'm going to be going to, uh, I'm going to be working at night, and he's going to be going to school in the day, and da, 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 da. I think maybe we figured out two or three hours a week is that you might as well not get married. You're going to blow a great friendship. But what they don't notice is that lack of time together erodes gradually the marital love. You don't see it right away. It doesn't just pop up and go, oh, next week I can't stand you. It erodes over time to the point where you've all seen couples who have been married a long time and they don't have passion for each other. They're not having fun as a married couple. They're kind of like Walmart and Pfizer. They've got a... <laughs> Uh, some kind of uh, symbiotic relationship where they figured out their rules, but it's not passionate. It's not fantastic. It's not, as Teresa always said to the boys, you want to be googly-eyed in love, and you want your wife to be googly-eyed in love with you. And that's, uh, that, that, that's so true. So to maintain that, takes 15 hours a week. And it's the same thing even in friendships, in relationships in the church. There's a reason the last number of weeks we spent a number of time about togetherness and the importance of emphasizing that because when that doesn't happen, we start getting suspicious of one another. When we haven't talked to each other in a while, we haven't connected with each other in a while, then we hear something and we, I wonder what they're up to. Or we, we, we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Uh, it's easy to allow that to, to erode. So there's two ways that you can lose that loving feeling. So I kind of like that song. Uh, there's two ways you can lose that loving feeling. And, uh, and, and one way is, as we've said, it can just be slowly eroded because we're not nourishing the relationship with the amount of time that we need to get. And on average, as I said, it's about 15 hours a week. And and you know if you are married and you're not spending that time with your spouse, you might go, whoa, how in the world? I remember I did that. Whoa, how in the world are we supposed to find that kind of time together? Well, um, do you want to have great love or do you want to risk losing your marriage? Uh, you, you need to take this very, very seriously. This is well proven that, that people who do not take that kind of time with each other hurt themselves over a period of time and the bars of the castle start growing uh, between them. It's extremely dangerous. But the second one is sinful behavior, especially when it becomes habitual, and, and usually our sinful behavior is habitual, but sinful behavior immediately deals a major blow to feelings of love. And you know exactly how it is. When somebody hurts you, your feelings deeply. There's a tendency to want to either lash back or withdraw or uh, you, you suddenly are not so um, caring about them. Now you're angry. There's all kinds of emotions that come out of that, which hinders your ability to love. So think about it that way. If I want to hinder my friend's ability to love me or if I want to hinder my spouse's ability to love me, how would I do that quickly and easily? Commit a destructive relational sin and continue to do so. And it won't take long. It will quickly erode the love that we have. Now, very key point. 
the time it takes to build love takes a lot longer than the time it takes to erode the love. So it's like when, uh, when I first started learning about the stock market, and David Lee and some others here can tell you all about that, this, this principle, but if you, uh, if you buy a stock for $15 a share, and you lose 50%, now you have $7.50 a share, how much is it going to take, what's it going to take to get back to the $15 a share? 100% growth, but a 50% loss. Oh, that's the way it is. You can have a loss that, is, that takes a whole lot longer to rebuild than it took for it to erode away. So our re sinful relational uh, habits uh, are, are much more destructive, and we have to be very, very careful about this. So why, why, do, why did the uh, saying ever come, about, come up of, um, well, the honeymoon's over? Why'd that, why'd that saying ever come? Because sinful relational habits began to be practiced shortly after marriage. And people weren't careful and they didn't know why. Goodness, how many of us in our early years, and if you are still in your early years, how many of us could, could immediately identify relational habits that would destroy a loving, loving feeling in, in a friend or a mate? Well, most people couldn't list that, couldn't even say, I, well, I, I don't know, probably saying something bad to them, or, you know, you'd come up with a few things. But to really get a concrete idea about it, most people probably would not figure that out. And therefore, the honeymoon's over. And it doesn't take too long uh, for, that, for that to happen. All right, so a, a common mistake then, when we think about our love for one another and our love in a marriage, is our tendency is to consider how we want to be loved. Uh, and we want to tell our friend, our mate, our spouse, our brother or sister, here's how I want to be loved. Is that the way God went about this? God went about the opposite way. God expressed and, and used His love to nurture our love. He steps out and does what's necessary to bring us to love Him. As a husband, if I have this dream of the kind of wife I would like to have and what we're going to have in a marriage, or if you're a wife and you're thinking the kind of, of a husband that you want that would just be your Prince Charming, how do you approach it? The biblical way of approaching it is to use yourself to draw them to love. Nurture their love instead of trying to get them to see how you want to be loved. If you nurture their love, what's going to happen? Well, there's a, it's hard for them not to respond in a loving way. And so our job is to do just what Jesus did. He then nurtured our love by giving his life up for us. And that's the kind of thing that we want to keep in mind. All right, so we're going to hit six relational sins here, and I will tell you up front, uh, it would be very easy to spend six lessons 
on each of these relational sins, but this being more of a refresher course, so to speak, and not a lengthy series, I thought we would hit them rapidly, and, uh, and then we can, uh, we can get that before us, and we can talk maybe in more detail about it another time. The first, and maybe one right and, uh, intentionally at the top of the list, is sinful anger. Uh, Paul talks a lot about that, Ephesians 4 and verse 31, uh, when, he, when he says, uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Did you, did you, did you know that sinful anger, wrath, is one of the works of the flesh that is obvious that we are fleshly in Galatians 5, verse 19 and 20. The works of the flesh are evident. They are obvious. And one of those is outbursts of wrath, sinful wrath in some way or another. So who hasn't been there? Ah, you know, that's, that's like, whoa! And most of the, well, I would say not just most of the time, just, I would say just about 99.9% of the time. Whatever your anger weapon is, and for some, their anger weapon is not to raise their voice or shout or scream or uh, uh, throw things or, or clamor or whatever you want to say. It is a more silent, a pa- we would say passive aggressive, uh, get back at you type of, of anger. It, 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 is, it is expressed in different ways. But it's still anger and it's still penetrating and it's still deeply harmful. So what, what we did is we learned that. We learned that from our parents. And because we learned it from our parents, we oftentimes did not notice that God said it was sinful. And we didn't notice how damaging it was to someone else. So what really is happening when we use that? First off, everybody has that anger weapon. And secondly, anger is a way to control other people in other circumstances. That make sense? If I'm going to get angry at somebody, what am am I doing? You you have violated something. (laughs) You've violated my space, my sense of ought, which I think is just. You violated me, and I have got to teach you a lesson. So, a great question to ask is, who has the right to punish? And I'm sure everybody here knows the answer to that. God has the right to punish. Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says says the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God, he says in Romans 12, around verse 19. We are not to express that. We are not to do evil to somebody Okay, so that's what anger does. Anger is a way that I punish somebody else and say, you need to learn learn not to do that, and every time you do that, I'm going to go off on you, so I teach you a lesson about not doing that. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, every time you use anger to try to correct someone, you cause them to love you less. And what happens as they love you less and less and less, they're more unlikely to respond to you. 
And one day you use your anger against them and they look at you and go, so what? I don't care. And they're out the door. So you see how it, it's one of those things that this is true of all these relational sins. We all have a typical tendency to use them because of our frustration and because we oftentimes don't know how to handle it a different way. We use them and the use of them actually shoots ourselves in the foot. <laughs> we, we have defeated the very thing we wanted to get the other person to respond more favorably to us. So this is not the way. You say, well, what about when, you know? <laughs> I don't remember how the lady said to me when I went over this with her and her husband. She says, but he keeps putting stuff in the microwave without a cover and it explodes. What do you want me to do? <laughs> and I, all I could do to keep from, of course, laughing at the circumstances, because I understand her frustration. But I'm going, uh, dear, we need to work on getting him not to uncover the food in the microwave so it explodes and you have to clean it up. But your effort to correct him by screaming at him will most likely cause him to do it more often because he's mad at you. And he doesn't scream. He just goes, ha, 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 punches the button again, both on the microwave and on you. <laughs> so let's figure out a healthier way to handle this. Oh, I could multiply many situations like that, but you get, you get the point. The angry person, interestingly, does not believe somehow that he or she can calmly sit down and reason with their friend or their spouse about what was hurting them. That just doesn't seem to cross their mind. That takes too long. And besides, if I did that, I might find out I'm the one in the wrong because they may reason back with me that, well, you're missing something here. And this isn't all about you. That is about us. And we need to consider one another. So that is one of the problems there. And of course, the long-term problem of, of anger as we have said, is love keeps getting diminished over time to the point where a person really doesn't want to respond to you and has no will to respond to you because they're fed up uh, with your presence. And that is the big problem. So you shoot yourself in the foot. What you hope to change by anger, you now destroyed any possibility of doing so. What happened? The bars of the castle have been built and now they're unyielding, and now they're not going to, uh, to change. The second uh, relational sin is disrespectful judgments. How do you like living with a critic? <laughs> I remember um, I hadn't been in San Diego too long uh, when I moved there, and uh, the church there had had an ongoing problem, and interestingly enough, the family was, was not actually members at El Cajon, but loved to participate in any of the activities that were going on. And invariably when they were present, everybody walked around on eggshells because they were moat finders. They wanted to pick, pick, pick on everybody and everything that they did. And it was most uncomfortable and most difficult 
to have them around. It was no fun at all. And their judgments, of course, were their personal opinions about how Christianity ought to be played out in various ways and really did get in your face in a lot of ways. This is the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 when he says, Judge not that, that you be not judged, and why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Somebody who's going around being a speck finder usually has a major issue in their own life that they're not taking care of. Now, great, if I've got a speck in my eye, please take it out. But I would really prefer that you got the two by four out of your own eye first, otherwise you're going to gouge my eye out and it's going to really hurt. You're not going to be gentle and caring because you're not looking at yourself first. So this is often what happens in relationships and it happens in marriage. Marriages. I, I had a, I, two different couples come to my mind that dealt with many, many years ago before I came to Tennessee. Uh, one, one couple uh, was, uh, uh, the woman looks at me and goes, he won't let me sweep the floor without correcting how I hold the broom. He won't let me make a meal without, me, without him giving me a critique of the meal. Could have had a little more salt, honey. I think the spice was a little too much. I, I, uh, I, I've never had this happen to me uh, because I'm ex one of the things, and Teresa has even complimented me on this, you eat anything I set before you happily, and I do. Uh, and, uh, but I, I just inherently have always known that if I gave her a little critique, I would probably have the plate upside down on my lap. <laughs> And I would deserve it. I think I would get a big uh, laugh out of that if I deserved it. If I didn't deserve it, I don't think I would. But I'd still eat it off my lap. That, that's just the, the way it would be. But it, it, it's just that kind of, 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 uh, of interaction. You see, there's, there's a feeling that I'm superior to someone else. You know, Romans 14 says it this way. I think this is an interesting parallel. He says, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. Judging someone and accepting someone is opposites. Do you accept me? Or do you judge me? Do you look at yourself as having a superior point of view over me? You see how a relationship doesn't get along well that way. And it's, it's very, very hurtful when that, when that takes place. So here's what disrespectful judgments do and criticisms. You try to impose then a system of values or ways of accomplishing tasks. A man can walk in the kitchen, see his wife cooking something, and has figured out that there's a better, more efficient way of doing that. And I've made this mistake. Well, you know, if you did it this way, it'd just be... <laughs> Oh, almost the uh, hot pan was on my head, too. Uh, so, well, uh, wait a minute. Time out. There's a different way maybe to talk about that, but that's not the way, and that's not the time. Be happy you have somebody in there cooking your meal. That is not the way we accomplish this. But there is a sense of superiority, then, that takes place when we do that. So the evidence of this is we nag, we lecture, we complain, we berate, 
until we get our way or we at least get them to agree that I'm the one who's right in this relationship uh, about whatever it is that you think. This is extremely damaging. And, and you know, you, you, you could have a spouse who, uh, and here, here's what happens, we'll talk about this later, but they take it and they take it and they take it and maybe they're kind of passive and they don't say anything. But it's the, uh, the old story of um, bend and bend and bend and bend and then, <laughs> I can't take this anymore. <laughs> that sort of thing. That's right, Ellis. Uh, it's exactly that response. I get it. I shouldn't have ever done that, you poor little boy. He, he, now he thinks that's okay. <laughs> uh, isn't it great to have a family? That's great. So uh, it, it implies that your spouse basically has poor judgment and you have a superior perspective and all that. So again, uh, we can discuss things, but we have to do it in a particular way. Would you be willing to try what you're doing? Would you be willing to consider another way to do it or um, that we could do a trial period on? and see how you like it. And if you don't like it, I'll keep my mouth shut. You know? And they might say, no, I, I'm happy with the way it is. Great, okay, we're done. <laughs> um, just thought we'd give that some thought. So it, it, it just depends. But you cannot push somebody into a different point of view uh, that way. Uh, again, you, you have lost love in the other person, and when you've done that, your attempt at criticism because you thought you could correct something actually was self-defeating and you made matters worse than they were before they love you less they're less likely to respond thirdly annoying behavior my favorite proverb around practically he who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning it will be counted as a curse to him <laughs> very very good um, uh, and that, uh, that's exactly the way I feel about it, too. Uh, Teresa, when we first got married, would come down the stairs with great joy and say, Guten Tag! And I'd go, Honey, <laughs> how about Buenos Dias? In a calm voice. You know, Guten Tag. <laughs> I really learned from that. I don't like the German language at all. It's very harsh. <laughs> so, uh, now, now, you know, see, the, the intentions are good, aren't they? The intentions of this person is, is excellent, but they're not considering the other person. And thus Titus chapter 3, verse 2 says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Just because I like it doesn't mean that someone else would like it. So there is a there is an understanding, and everybody's going to be different about this. The person you married, you could have married somebody different, and, and Guten Tag would have been just the uh, joy of their life to hear you say that. But it depends on the individual. So a lot of our, our challenges is to know one another, to know our spouse, so that we know what is pleasing and what is inconsiderate. It's pretty simple. There's all kinds of things that would involve, we could again spend a long time on that. There's an undisciplined lifestyle, lazy lifestyle, self-important lifestyle, tail-bearing, uh, without taste. Uh, you could go on and on about that. But here's a good rule of thumb. Um, 
Oh, well, I guess the rule of thumb comes later. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I thought I had that. But the rule of thumb on annoying behavior is if, if the other person thinks it's annoying, it is. Don't start going, well, that shouldn't be annoying to you. <laughs> well, I don't mean it to be annoying to you. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> and it is like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. So we all have those kinds of things that we need to be, be aware of. Independent behavior. We have talked about into behavior without using that term quite a bit in the last number of weeks when we talk about our togetherness. We cannot have, we have a dependency and accountability to each other. We cannot exercise independent behavior from the local body if we're going to do what God asks us to do to stimulate and stir one another up to love and good work. So we spend a long time on that, but that's also true in a marriage relationship. It's a violation of the amount of time that's needed to nurture love. And we start violating that amount of time by things that are our interests, living parts of our life as if we were single, or pursuing outside interests, or not sacrifice, and, and by doing so, sacrificing priorities within our family. Uh, here's the rule of thumb. Never do anything without the enthusiastic support and agreement of your spouse. We need to have, okay, is, is, is this cool that, that I could... I could do this, and we can, you will still be, uh, still be in, totally in favor of this. And there's times we all need some independent time, obviously, but not in sacrificing the priorities that we have for our own relationship and our marriage. So independent behavior is also one of those things. It, it happens a lot in younger marriages. Um, just all of a sudden I'm married, and I still have all this other interest and all these other friends, and uh, it's hard maybe to separate from them. So I put that on the wrong um, slide. I can see that in there. There was my, my rule of thumb. If it's annoying uh, your friend or spouse, then, then, then that makes it annoying, and, and, and that's that. Okay, and then, uh, and then uh, fifth, selfish demands. Uh, this is usually done by a fairly carnal person but also a very frustrated person. Uh, no, you know, he, in, a, in a marriage, a lot of times we, we say to ourselves, I have certain things I expect from my spouse, and if they do not fulfill those things, I can't go to somebody else. That can't be fulfilled somebody, by somebody else. And I... I need you to fulfill it. I, I remember one example that was given of this is after um, uh, a couple had a child, uh, the man was accustomed to his wife ironing his shirt uh, for, uh, for a business trip or whatever. And, and he said one morning, honey, I, I need this shirt ironed. And she says, well, I need to di diaper and nurse this baby. So I can't do it. What are you talking about? You can't do it. You must do this, and you must do it now. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, as I have said to a few guys, learn to iron. <laughs> it isn't a big challenge, and uh, you'll do fine at it. <laughs> but demanding does what? It again hurts deeply 
and it is a problem. So Paul, of course, said, uh, by the way, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God does not make demands on us. He draws us so that we act out of love. I, I really, it's really frustrating when we think only in terms of, I have an obligation to obey God. I do have an obligation. But the obligation should come from stirred up love for him, for what he's done for me. We've studied in Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So instead of being demanding, we have to think about, obviously, the other person's point of view and the other person's condition. Now, here's the rule of thumb. Don't ask anything that causes dis- discomfort. You can ask your spouse, your brother in Christ, or whatever, to do something that you know is going to be very, very uncomfortable for them. That you're pushing them into doing something that, that uh, they may do because you have uh, put some kind of demand on them. A spouse may do it because you're demanding it, because you maybe give a threat. And that's what usually a demand is. If you don't do this, then I will fill in the blank. The problem with that is, is the person might go ahead and do it. First or second or third time. Or pretty soon. It's like, and if I don't, what? You've, you've eroded the love away. It's the inappropriate and improper way of developing and maintaining a relationship. So we don't do anything that will cause that further loss of love. Uh, Finally, the sixth is dishonesty. Uh, The Proverbs 29, verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, a man who who says, says all kinds of good things about his neighbor and your path and what you're doing is just fantastic. It's great when he knows full well it's going to lead to destruction. No, that's dishonest. Now, we would all know, yeah, dishonesty in a marriage where I just outright lie to my wife is not good, and that would be terrible. I outright lie to you as a brother in Christ. That would be very, very terrible. But dishonesty comes in a much more subtle way. It's a, it's a way in which I do not reveal my feelings to my friend or to my spouse. I don't tell them and let them know when they are repeatedly hurting me in certain ways or repeatedly acting in ways that are destructive to themselves and to our relationship. But I don't want to say anything. Because I'm afraid that if I say something, then we're going to have an argument. And I don't want to have an argument. Well, we don't want to have an argument. That's right. But what happens is, if you keep hurting me and I keep not telling you that you're hurting me, pretty soon, the love and the relationship is diminished. And secondly, you'll never know that you needed to make a change. It's very damaging to a person when you say, by the way, uh, you're just great on how you, you subtly say, you, oh yeah, everything's fine, honey. You ever d- done this in your marriage? You, you come home, uh, I do it from, I'll say it from a man's point of view. You come home, she's uh, working on something. Say, hey, how are you doing? Okay. I'm, as soon as I hear, okay. I go, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. 
what, what, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what's, what's going on? Nothing. Uh, 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 excuse me, wait a minute, something's going on. No. Uh-oh. <laughs> and it just, no, no. Let me know. If I respond poorly, that's on me. But it's important that you're not dishonest with me. Because the dishonesty erodes that relationship. No matter what your motives are, dishonesty erodes it. It's like playing a pickup basketball game and calling your own fouls. The only time there's a brawl on that basketball court was, of course, is when a guy didn't call his foul and the other guy just fouls him worse the next three times. And pretty soon it's a mess. Call your foul. Uh, you could get a little whistle in your marriage, you know. Uh, foul. I, I called a foul. <laughs> that one hurt. <laughs> please, don't, please don't hurt me. I don't like that. So a spouse's feelings are hurt, but he or she does not reveal the hurt uh, to her spouse. So here's the here's final thing. There's a difference between honesty and a critical judgment. For example, wife says, I'd like to spend more time with you. I really need more time. Honest, opinion, honest revelation. Or I, be, I become upset when I'm left alone at night. I, I wish, I wish uh, that we could be together. Honest report. Or I'm the least important person in your life. You'd rather be with anybody but me. Disrespectful criticism. Now you've gone from reporting the feeling to accusing and making a judgment. Or... If you don't spend more time with me, I'll find somebody else. Selfish demand. The last two are destructive. The first two are reporting feelings. It's always legal to report my feelings about how things are going so that the other person can get a gauge. Oh, thank you. Now I know where I can be better. Would you help me with that? (laughs) Help me get better at that. That would be appreciated. So the key to love. It will not do any good to attempt to develop love in another person or in your spouse if at the same time you're practicing relational sins. You can make all kinds of deposits, but the love will diminish much faster than your deposits, and you will not be able to keep up with it, and you will destroy the relationship. All right, six relational sins. Uh, Many of you knew a lot of those things, but... I think it's always good for us to remind ourselves of. We're going to sing a song right now, and if we can help you in any way, be glad to do so uh, as we stand and as we sing.